0: Because you are a listener of the Autism Outreach Podcast, I wanted to tell you about a really exciting opportunity that is happening this month. I am doing a free live webinar that will be 45 minutes in length, and it is all about autism strategies for toddlers and preschool age students. I cannot wait to connect with you live. In this talk, I'm going to talk about how to help toddlers and preschool students start communicating. You will be able to walk away from the webinar with actionable strategies that you can use today. I want you to feel very confident helping either your own child or students with autism that you are working with. This is a perfect webinar for parents and professionals alike, and I cannot wait to connect with you live. I'm offering this webinar on September 21st, September 22nd, and September 28th make sure that you join us live. When you join us live, you will get access to my PowerPoint slides so you can have all of this great information right at your fingertips. Make sure that you visit the show notes for the link. You can register at www.abaspeech.org slash webinar autism strategies. I can't wait to see you soon. Welcome to the Autism Outreach Podcast. I am your host, Rose Griffin. I am so excited for today. Our toddler preschool course is launching. Woohoo! Get that applause going. I have been working diligently on getting this course to you. If you have a toddler at home, a preschool age student, and they're not yet communicating, they're struggling to communicate, or you're an early intervention provider working with autistic students, you will want to check out this course. I share with you tips and strategies that you can start using today with your child, with your students. So you can take those strides helping your students start to communicate on their own. It has been so amazing to be able to put this together. I talk about joint attention. I talk about how to plan therapy sessions. It's such a wonderful resource of information. And I'm excited to share with you that today it is here. Hooray. I had a great chat today too with Crystal Stanford. She is a speech language pathologist She is also a mom to an autistic child, and she shares with us her professional and her parental journey today. We talk all about accessing services, we talk about including parents as part of the team. Parents are such an important resource. And I think that's something that's been really important for me here on the podcast is to have a lot of parents on. I think sometimes when I am the provider, I want to really know how the parent is feeling about the therapeutic process. Um, And sometimes we can't always ask those questions. And so that's why I'm really excited um, to have Crystal on today. She offers great information. We talk all about information that's helpful, whether you're a parent or whether you're working with parents. Um, We talk all about Zoom meetings um, that are IEP meetings and how uh, we don't miss those IEP meetings with 20, 25 people in a conference room. That has been kind of a byproduct of COVID is that we have had some IEP meetings that are on Zoom and how that does actually feel a little collaborative. It's not us versus you, different sides of the table, which I never really analyzed until we talked today. A lot of really great nuggets of information. I can't wait to get into this episode.
1: You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use
0: in your next therapy session. Thanks for joining us on episode 39. We have a great episode today. I'm super excited about this chat. We have with us Crystal Sanford from Sanford Autism Consulting. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us, Crystal. It's really nice to have you on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's really my pleasure. (laughs) I remember I was driving to work one day. I cannot remember when it was. It was sometime this past spring, I think. And I was listening to uh, Jenna Castro's private practice podcast, and I have a small private practice called ABA Speech. I'm a school-based therapist, but I also have my own practice too. And so I'm always inspired by Jenna and all of her stories and she shares. And you were on as a guest and everything you said, I was like, oh my goodness, I need to meet this lady. I, I love everything you had to say and your mission and, and how you're serving others. And so I think I hit you up on LinkedIn and then we were able to to schedule this chat. So I'm really excited to to learn more about you, your work and so much that you have to share because we do have a mix of professionals that listen and also parents, but such great information. So for those of us that don't know much about you, can you tell us a little bit about you and your background?
1: Sure. So uh, I'm originally a speech pathologist, uh, 20 years in public schools throughout California as an SLP from preschool to, you know, 21 and a half here in California. So I've served in all areas and autism really became my passion. I have since then, uh, you know, retired from working in schools. But um, autism became my profession about uh, halfway in. And then all of a sudden, surprise, I had my first kiddo. And about 18 months, I started to suspect that she might be on the spectrum. And only because of my experience and background did I Suspect this, and I'm actually writing a book about it today. I was just writing this chapter today, and and I just remember people saying, you know, you're just a mom, you're an SLP, you're looking too deep into it. She's fine, she has eye contact, she can do all but <laughs> um, you know, at age three. Yeah. Uh, I have finally identified with being on the spectrum. And, uh, and I soon began to realize that I wanted to do something different. I always felt like I was going to have private practice at some point, but I realized how little support parents get. And so in 2016, I decided to open my practice. So I offer IEP advocacy because that's what parents really started coming to me about. Not necessarily wanting a private speech therapist, but they wanted some help in what does this look like in the school system? How can I get some support? So I opened that practice. I help a uh, fellow special needs parents. I teach uh, IEP training classes to parents. I have a podcast. It's all for, for parent support. So I'm really happy to offer that.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. Because I feel like it has to be now my children are are typically developing learners, but I, you know, with my private practice, I work in a lot of homes. That's usually where I go to see kids. So I become very close with families. That's one of the things that I really love about the private practice is that you can just, you know, be in the house and you can meet brother and sister and dad, and you kind of get the family dynamic and you can help on such such a different level. I feel like sometimes in the schools, while I feel like school therapy is important um because i am a school therapist it's just another level of support when you're in the home because you can just see so many things about how the family dynamic is working. And I feel like that's what's really hard as a school-based therapist. And I'm always trying to make sure I have these embedded ongoing communication touch points with parents that are are beyond like, you know, the progress report and the IEP. And, um, you know, at the beginning of the year, I check in with all my parents and I send them all an email to say, hi, you know, I'm going to be your speech therapist. Usually it's like, again, because I work in a small district. But I always want parents to feel... Feel like they're such an important part of the team. And I just know from meeting some other autism um, moms and just other people that not everybody has that warm and fuzzy experience. And it, it can just be overwhelming. Even if you do have a good team in place, the whole process can feel really daunting for parents, right?
1: It really, really can. I think just, you know, just first of all, having a kiddo with a unique need, a lot of parents feel isolated. They feel as though, you know, I'm the only one. Maybe they don't have connections with resources. They haven't found their tribe. I talk a lot with parents about that. But then on top of that, having to navigate this world of special education can in itself be daunting. Like you said, even for me, after being an employee, it was very different sitting in that seat as a parent. And so, yeah, parents don't get that experience. You're amazing that you make that kind of connection and you make you purposefully, you're intentional in that. But not every parent gets that experience. And so I, I do teach and encourage parents to reach out to those professionals to, you know, write write the email, um, you know, make sure that your voice is heard and then I, I go alongside them to, to make sure that that's happening. So.
0: Oh that's yeah. great. So yeah. do you offer or do you act as an advocate ever in meetings or act as a support person it kind of in in meetings as well or are you kind of more behind the scenes in your level of support for parents? No,
1: nope, I do it all. I do behind okay. the scenes for parents who have a level of comfort and they just want to have a coach alongside them and then I also do the full package. You know, parents will say, I want you to handhold me through this. And so I will do that. And I will attend every meeting with them. I write analysis of the IEP and, and get their feedback. And we share that with the team. So I'm really a one-stop shop. <laughs>
0: I think that's great because actually I was, I'm going to have um another lady on who is an, an advocate. She uh, was a special ed teacher and um, she had three children. Her fourth child is autistic. And so she um, has since quit working and she since is working as kind of an advocate. But I know sometimes as a School based therapist. And I'd be curious to know if you ever, when you were a therapist, worked with an advocate in meetings. I know sometimes therapists can feel kind of defensive and nervous, but I always just feel like, you know, parents can be overwhelmed and and advocates have such an important role. But if somebody is listening and they're not really sure, like what an advocate does, can you kind of just describe some of the roles and kind of how you can kind of help out both sides? Because I think one of the things that we do in the school that I work in and most of the places that I've worked you know, that we send a draft of the IEP home. Like, I think that's like like a week in advance, you know, because a lot of the kids that I work with do have autism. A lot of the kids that I work with do have other providers, outside providers. And so we really welcome, like you said, you kind of write of analysis of the IEP. We really welcome all that kind of feedback and we want to make sure that we can incorporate Feedback from the team, you know, with the advocate being somebody that's on the team. But if if somebody's listening and they maybe have never met an advocate in a meeting, can you kind of describe kind of what your role is sometimes when you come in to a meeting? Sure.
1: And first of all, I want to say, you know, kudos to you guys. If your parents are in your area, I encourage them to reach out because these are things that just aren't happening everywhere. I mean, the fact that you send a draft of the IEP, I, I encourage parents to do that. It often doesn't happen unless the parent acts So. These are great ways to engage and for parents to be able to really make meaning of an IEP. I mean, it, it's really a different language for most parents. You know, I know parents who will say, you know, I know a, lady, a parent and she said, I can build you a house from scratch. I am that good, but I have no clue what's going on with my kid's IEP. She's like, I'm an intelligent person, but this is like another language. And so advocates typically go into the IEP meeting, hopefully, if they're doing it right, as a liaison, as a support person. And I talk about being the uh, able to bridge the gap between school and parents. And so an advocate may come in, be with the parent, they may um, ask some leading questions, they may present some of the parents' um, specific concerns, they might speak to some of the goals to make sure that they are, uh, quote unquote, uh, smart goals, um, you know, relevant and timed and all those mm-hmm. things. So an advocate should be there to really make sure that the parents voices her throughout the IEP process. You know, I've seen some who are a little bit more overbearing and overwhelming. And, and I think because I've been a district employee, I've been on that other side. I have been the speech therapist with an advocate. And I know how it feels when you're being accused And I know how it feels when there's someone who, you know, is there really to work alongside you. And so, You know, I think that that really is the role to to really support the parent. And I tell parents, I'm not going to be here for the rest of your child's life, but you are. And so I really want to empower you and learn from me while we're in these meetings. And I want to learn from you. And then eventually I want to work myself out of a job. I want to fade away like we do at behavior support. The parent then can can do that great work with their child.
0: Oh, I love that. I talk about these. I knew I was going to get along with you. I always say these things kind of in a different lens, but I always talk about working with paraprofessionals or one-on-one staff. And I always say, I want to help you build your competency, right? Same idea. I want you to learn your these skills. I want to model. I want to give you feedback about how you're playing it. I'm here to be your mentor, your coach, your guide. These are all the same things I say kind of in a different framework, different audience so that I, I don't, I, that I'm not there. Right. And so that that paraprofessional will work with many autistic students and touch many, many lives, just like the families that you're working with, you know, who knows, like a lot of parents go on to support their child and to maybe want to be able to help navigate this with other, Parents. And that's really good. And I think that that really sets a tone. I think it just sets a tone. I mean, sometimes antecedently, parents will have advocates that are just always a part of the team. And then it feels really like, oh, yeah, you know, so and so's here. Yeah, she's the advocate, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. Other times, I feel like sometimes an advocate gets involved when we're not seeing eye to eye. So then it can be Uh a little touchy, right? Like we, those meetings, I did say the one thing about the pandemic that. I don't know if we'll ever go back to like meetings. I'm I'm sure you've been in these if you're working with autistic students where you know there's 20 people around a small conference table and sweating perfumes (laughs) talking about my baseline data. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know if we'll ever go back to that. And I'm kind of like, I think I'm okay with that. I think I'm okay with a Zoom conference meeting. You know what I mean?
1: (laughs) I think it really allows more flexibility. And I think it helps to break down the us against them. because now it's not one side of the table versus yes. the other side. now we're just kind of all together uh-huh. and hopefully you know we're all focusing on the most important thing which is the success of the child so I'm pretty good with the zoom meetings I could keep it going
0: yeah I do like that because you're right it's like the 20 chairs and, yeah. and you're like oh so-and-so's coming we need yeah, another chair exactly. so and so's oh. coming and then it's like you're right it's like parent advocate lawyer and then school team yeah so that is good I see I haven't even thought of that right because the grid is kind of mixed so it kind of lends itself to being more coherent. So that's a good point. I like that. Very cool. So, you, I know you mentioned, you know, parents should always trust their gut, answer questions. Do you have any guidance for parents? Um, You know, I know I work in people, you know, early intervention. And so I have parents who are, you know, just getting an autism diagnosis. I have parents who are, you know, seeking my services, but they're also getting ABA, but they're also, um, you know, getting evaluated by a public school and they're just not sure how all the pieces fit, you know, and I coach parents a lot on that. Like, you know, no, this is your right. Like if you want to do services this way, you need to advocate for that um, but I think sometimes, you know, some parents can be a, a little overbearing and it can be hard to to work with them. And I know they're just fighting for their child and what they want is best. Um, but I think other parents feel a little shy and they feel like, oh, well, can I ask that? Or, you know, like what guidance do you have for parents um, as far as like trusting your gut and being able to kind of navigate those situations as they arise.
1: Yeah, that is really one of the biggest uh, points that I share with parents. It's, it's trust your gut and ask questions. So for those parents who are new to the process, you know, I encourage them to think about your child, think about what's working. And, and COVID has kind of helped in this. What works well for your kiddo? If you've been home with your kiddo, maybe you've tried some things. Maybe you've been more involved. Maybe you know that, you know, they'll work for Thomas, the train or whatever. And so use that information. And so if things are coming up, you have questions about, you know, ask those questions and don't be afraid. Maybe prepare them ahead of time and put them in writing if that makes Mm -hmm. the parent more comfortable. And then ask uh, those questions, you know, or present that to the team. And then I also encourage parents to really to be a listener and to be really persistent when it comes to what they know works well for their kiddo. But at the same at the same time, realizing that the IEP and special education, the law says is there to provide What is appropriate for your child, not what's best. Hmm. In the class that I teach, I teach about best versus appropriate. It's a parent pitfall because we all want what's best for our kiddo, of course, but that's not what the law requires. It requires that teams provide a free and appropriate education for the child. And so you've got to balance that. You've got to balance what you know, what you know works for your kiddo, what you want with what's most appropriate for them and what is reasonable to be provided within the school
0: environment. Yeah, that's such a good point, you know, because my whole career has been public school speech therapist, part-time, and then uh, part-time before I had my own business, um, which was four years ago, it's ABA speeches four, yay. You know, I always divided my time in non-public programs for okay. students with autism, so ABA type you know, centers. And each has its own pros and cons. And, you know, I would see some parents who are in a public school really wanting to get their children into, you know, an ABA program, but, you know, it's more restrictive. They just don't have things, you know, like, you know, a gym class. Like there's things that happen in a public school that are really kind of nice for group skills. Like there's gym and there's lunch and outside, and we have a track and community-based outings and all those different things, which is so nice. That's kind of like embedded already where I see like when your child goes to a non-public program, not to say that they're not going to have access to those things, but the non-public program has to really put all those things together. And I don't know if you guys have a lot of non-public programs in your area where you're at in California. Do you guys have a lot of those types of programs where it would be the student's least restrictive environment to be in a different placement due to behavioral barriers or or anything like that.
1: We do have those. We have some that are more for kiddos who have really high needs. We have yeah. some that are for kiddos who actually are more on that mild moderate. So we even have some that for kiddos who just have like significant learning disabilities or mm-hmm. maybe like level one, a lower need, I kid uh, on the spectrum. And so um, we do have a variety of those. And you're right. I, I talked to parents about that. They're and cons, you know, least restrictive environment for a kiddo. Of course, ideally, there's some exposure to general education students. And so you're not going to get that in an MPA, in a non-public school. However, you will get maybe some more strategic learning and intervention programs you're not going to get in the public school. Um, So, you know, I, I try to encourage parents to look at the pros and cons, go out there and observe, ask questions, check out all kinds of programs. And I Because I tell parents, you need to present a solution Mm. and to really be solution minded. Because if by chance, you know, they ended up having to file a complaint, a due process complaint, that's exactly what is required is that you have to write as a parent, what do you want as the solution to the problem? And so I try to tell parents to act and think with that in mind. Okay you don't like what's happening with this or that or behavior, whatever. Well, what is it that you want? What is it that's the solution? So maybe you need to go out there and look at the non-public school and see if that's really what you want or go look at a program. And so, with think while thinking with the solution in mind, sometimes that helps parents in making better decisions.
0: Oh, I didn't know. Knock on wood. I haven't had to deal with a situation like that it's in great. 20 years, but you know, let you know, I still have some ways to go right in my career. So, <laughs> okay. So that's a solution minded. Okay. That's really good. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be hard for parents when they know maybe the the district is not serving the child the way that they want, or there's just like a major conflict. I mean, I know one of the things um, that I've definitely been in touch with on both sides is doing IE testing where, you know, a parent can request additional testing. Like I've been, the person doing all the battery of tests. And I've also been the speech therapist getting, you know, the 20 page report with all that great information. When my students get that, I'm like, oh man, okay. I mean, yeah, record review. This is really, really thorough because it goes back to the pros and cons in a school, you know, we could observe the kid in group and at lunch and outside and a private practice. You probably cannot get that experience unless you come into the school, but you can do rigorous, rigorous, rigorous testing. That is a little bit harder for us. Is that something that you recommend to parents too as kind of I'm sure there's a kind of a step by step process where you know you want to go in and and work collaboratively with the team but is that extra testing or outside testing something that some parents are recommended to get, just to get another eye on things?
1: It is. Uh, for parents who really have some concern around the evaluation, maybe they feel as though it wasn't done with enough depth, or maybe um, it doesn't paint the accurate picture of their child, then on uh, those occasions, I do recommend an IE, an independent education evaluation. And I'm also an IE provider for speech oh. therapy now, now that I'm retired from the district. So one thing I always tell parents is that when you're looking for a provider for that, make sure you find someone who is confidently going to present their report and their recommendations, not just going to do a bunch of testing, write a report and hand it off. They got to be there. They got to defend that and be there to provide solutions and and answer questions for the team. And it should definitely include observations on the school site. I do at least one to two observations. Okay. I want to see the kid in every environment because that's what I did when I was in the school. Yeah. And I want to do the same thing um, as that provider. So that what I'm recommending is reasonable to be implemented in the school environment.
0: Oh, wow. That's really, I love that. I love the fact that you have the school based practice experience as well, because I think that sometimes when you don't have that then it can be a little skewed. You know, you have the report, but you're like, how does this really translate to Mm -hmm. this environment? And I think that's so important. I was just, I'm putting together a toddler preschool course. That's going to be ASHA approved all about how to help autistic um, students start communicating that are struggling learners. And we talk all about observation as being a gold standard part of the assessment. And it can be really hard. Like as a school-based therapist, I always make sure that I include that because it's so important. And I'm right there, right? I always say like the larger school environment because rarely do I see a student in my office. I really don't have many kids. I really believe like therapy is like done in the classroom or in the school environment and kind of out and about natural routines. But you can really see all that sometimes in a clinic, it's hard. So I think it's really great that you're taking that step. And when I was doing IE testing, I was doing it as part of like a very comprehensive team. So, you know, there was a psychologist and an OT and You know, at BCBA, I was the speech therapist on the team. And it was, I mean, these reports that we would put together (laughs) were like, you know, they're like 60 pages and you're right. You gotta, you have to be completely ready. Um, I feel like I was honing my, you know, before I did some writing for ASHA and things like that, I was like really honing my skill by doing some of these IEE reports because it's just so very thorough. So it's really nice that you're, you're able to provide that service because I do think for parents, it's really nice to have somebody who is maybe emotionally neutral to the case. Because I think sometimes when you're in a school, it it can just get emotionally charged, right? It's just kind oh, yeah. of a weird dynamic. For
1: sure. Yeah, it does for people who are really connected with the meeting and come in connected with the child. The parent is, of course, emotionally connected. So it is nice to have that third party, that person who can come in and really share oh, oops. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. uh, and just kind of really share a little bit more broadly about the needs of the child and really keep everybody kind of on track with, again, focusing on the child. So
0: yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's important for parents to know that that they are the true experts on their child. I know that sometimes that can be hard because I mean, with my own kids, it's like, they totally act different when they're at school versus when they're at home. My kids are actually right now, present time, they're all actually very good when they're at school. And when they're at home, it's like a nightmare. But yeah. maybe that's that's summer talking. That's me hanging out <laughs> with them all day with less structure. But I know sometimes when a parent will say like, you know, my child's reading or my child is doing this at home and and where we've never seen that in the school environment, it can kind of be hard. Any tips for parents that might be listening and thinking, gosh, I really want to convey that, you know, so um, I'm an expert on my child or are their are there strategies or ways that they can they can do that with their teams they're working with.
1: One thing I always encourage parents to do is to develop a parent input statement. And so every year they should develop a statement that explains just a little bit, nothing overwhelming, but a little bit about almost a vision statement, who their child is, what are their diagnoses, what works well at home, what are the maybe couple of focus points that they want to focus on this school year and then like a best way to contact them. And so I think if parents can draft that and then also be bringing in the child as the child gets older, bringing in their input there, then that can kind of help set the stage for what they believe and what what should be an appropriate IEP for the child.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I love that idea that you talked about as the child gets older, having their input in as well. I definitely have worked in settings where we would have even student-led IEPs, Mm -hmm. which I, I really love that idea where the student students are taking ownership. Of their goals, and I always talk with my older students. I, I see middle school and high school students, and I'm very transparent. <laughs> you know, um, this is what we're working on, and um, these this is how I'm supporting you. And you have thoughts on this? I'm always doing like questionnaires and checking in because they need to they need to know about the process. You know, like when a, a child gets a new IEP, like we go over the IEP and we talk about the goals, and I, I think that's so important that they're that they're very involved in that way? Because really what it segues into is, is them being able to self-advocate for themselves. Oh yeah. You know? Sure.
1: you know, I can remember I worked the second half of my career was 10 years in middle school. And so I did a little bit of preschool, elementary. I did high school for four years and then 10 years in middle school. And I would do that every September. You know, we would all talk about, you know, it was cultivating language as well or whatever they're working on. But we talk about who's your case manager? What is an IEP? What does this mean? What are your things that you're working on? And then uh, we would create little data sheets around that. And so I would really want to start that work in middle school so that they would become more and more confident about who they were and begin to become their own best advocate.
0: Yeah. I think that's a great idea. Cause even for kids um, you know, on this podcast, we talk about autism a lot, obviously autism outreach, but I've had other students who um, maybe were stutterers or, you know, had something that was actually very mild and maybe I was only seeing them once a month, but they had some accommodations on their IEP. And so we would really, I would coach them about what those were, because the thing is like, when you said you're like working yourself out of a job, you know, I'm always thinking that too with my students. Like I tell my students, you know, the high school is big. There's a lot of people mm-hmm. up there. I can go and I can do it in all staff training. Mm-hmm. I can support. I can be a consult. I can see you directly. But there are going to be times where I really have to shift this responsibility of advocating on your behalf, which I will continue to do. But mm-hmm. I think being able to to tell that to students and try to coach them on that. I don't think we learn about that in graduate school. I don't know. I feel like that's something, right? I've just like kind of picked up. It seems like common sense, but I don't know if everybody, you know, works on that directly with students, but do you find that that to be an important point to think about?
1: I do. Like I said, I try to do that as early as, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, but I think it helped because I'd worked in high school first. And, you know, we're talking about young adults here. People are getting ready to get jobs, you know, have relationships and move out. And so I think that's really great. Like you said, coaching, we're really becoming their coach. And a lot of that work and communication really is uh, coaching them on how to use their skills and maybe how to compensate for the areas of need, maybe some, maybe some compensatory strategies. because. Maybe your intelligibility isn't great. OK, you're 17 now. What are we going to do about it? You know, so here are some things that you can do to help you yourself be understood, you know, the most or, you know, social skills are not your thing. You're on the spectrum. We let's talk about that. So then right. what can you do. So, yeah, I feel like that coaching and helping the child to take some onus in it. I think it also helps their confidence to know, like, OK, you know, so I'm not good at this, but I am good at that and helps build their confidence, too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think by talking about it too, it's, it doesn't seem like it's a bad thing. It's like, I always say like, I need support with things. Like it's all different. When I talk about social skills, you know, I've had students before where I say, I'm just your social coach. You know what I mean? Like we're just kind of fine tuning. And I say, you know what, in middle school, like everyone pretty much needs a social coach. I mean, I needed one back in middle school. Oh my gosh, traumatic seventh grade. But, you know, it's just like, I'm there. I try to coach them, talk about those things openly, practice those. I had found though, with the pandemic, some students that maybe were working on social skills, you know, social skills were so very different um, due to modified school schedules, due to not as many students in your class, no after school clubs, you know, um, students that would take, the bus, we're no longer taking the bus. The social skills seem to kind of go haywire on the bus, right? The bus is a big issue, middle school, high school. But yeah, I think as kids get older, like thinking about those types of things is um, really important and trying to coach them. But I'm glad you said that because I've definitely told students before, you know, just think of me as your social coach. We're just kind of tweaking things. A lot of people need support in different areas. Or I had one student who was working in our library and, you know, we did a video model and I was talking with the staff and consulting and um, I would just kind of go in and work on my computer. I thought this was like the coolest setup ever. I would just go in and kind of pretend I was working on my computer and the student was doing their whole job. Like I wasn't even there. And I was like, this is what speech therapy really should be, yeah. right? It's like fading myself to, to kind of be like a job coach, kind of yeah. there as a support if needed.
1: That's so wonderful. And that's such a great use of time. And I think as an SLP, you know, you, I'm sure you probably left that thinking like, wow, this was worthwhile. Like you said, that this is what speech therapy is all about. Sometimes I think we get kind of caught up in in the paperwork and, you know, we got to get bogged in and we miss the relevance of what we do. And so sometimes you just got to think outside the box and be mm-hmm. more creative and how we can best influence and, and impact the student's life.
0: And I think too, advocating what I have found too, advocating with staff about why you're working on something. Some, mm-hmm. sometimes students that are middle school, high school, people think that, you know, we should be working with a student in a therapy room. And if it doesn't happen in a therapy room, it's not, <laughs> it's not really therapy. And I I just want to shout from the rooftops, you know, we got to get out. We got to get out of the room. Like it's the real life is happening out there. You know, social skills are happening when kids are, you know, changing classes and like saying hi to each other and, you know, whatever they're doing or, but that's really where social skills take place. It's just so nuanced as students get older and being able to help support them so they feel comfortable. But I think getting out of the therapy room, if you can, is important and feeling comfortable to advocate for or why you're seeing students in a certain way. I think like you said some people just kind of get in this box about how we are serving right. kids and you know how we're going to write it on the IP and all those different types of things but so is is it good to think outside of the box sometimes for kids?
1: Yeah, I think it is. I think it is as, as long as you can relate it to something that is meaningful and needed in the child. If the child has a need and, you know, conversational turn taking, well, that's not, like you said, that's going to happen. Especially in middle high school, that's going to happen at the lunch table in the cafeteria room. It's going to happen at PE. Like that's yeah. where it's going to happen, and and so that's where you know some of our work can be. Some of that work can be. I mean, I remember some of the work can be in a therapy room. Maybe mm-hmm. we're Initially, teaching a goal, right. or teaching a skill set, but then you've got to go out there because especially our kids in the spectrum, they right. struggle with generalization. So you can teach it right, and you can have a small group in that speech room, and I tell you what, they go out there in the PE or somewhere else, and sometimes they're floundering. They're not right. using those same skills. So I think we've got, especially for our kids in the spectrum, we've got to get out there and and help s- supplement and support them in those other ways.
0: Yeah, I love that, and I always try to include that on IEPs where you know. I will teach the student a direct skill, just like you said, in the therapy room. And then I always say, you know, I'm in the larger school environment because that's kind of broad, right? Wherever the student potentially would need me. And then I'm kind of observing, like, are they applying this skill? I'm offering feedback and coaching. Definitely like during the next speech therapy session, because, you know, I pretend, you know, if the kids pretend like they don't know me, I'm fine with that. Like middle school, high school. When you said you did four years of high school, I was like, okay, I mean it can be a tough crowd, right? I mean, it's, you just have to really, I mean, they're adults. Like you said, these are like kids who are adults. They're getting jobs. They have relationships. It's, it's just fun. Like I love seeing my little kids. I have like all my therapy toys right down here, but I do love high school because it is such an exciting time. It's like, we're working on things that you're going to need for your life. Like this is lifelong skills. And so that's exciting.
1: Yeah, it really, really is. I mean, it's all great work. You know, I work with the little ones, early intervention, of course, that's so powerful and meaningful as well. But I think there's just, you know, there's, there's a big space there that we can continue to help support kids as they, as they grow.
0: Absolutely. I love that. So cool. Such great conversation. I always end the podcast with these last two questions here. What is the most important piece of advice that you would want to pass along to parents or professionals about communication in general?
1: Hmm. I think my, my biggest point I want to share with parents is to listen, is to listen to your child because they are always communicating something. Um, and I can remember back when my kiddo was, she was diagnosed at three and a half and she started uh, preschool uh, services and we had a phenomenal speech therapist and she talked about Hannon, the Hannon program. Yeah. we had people talk about that. And, um, And she told me about the acronym OWL, which was observe, wait, and listen. And I've never forgotten that. I mean, and she she helped us work so much on just sitting in my child's space and watching her play and then maybe talking and asking some questions about it and waiting and, and seeing what her response was and, and really actively listening. And so if your kiddo, you know, is on the spectrum and is, you know, minimally speaking, or if your kiddo, you know, is, you know, valedictorian, listen to them, listen to what they're saying. They're telling you something, give them a space and, and listen to that and find out how they're speaking and what, you know, it could be that they're using words. It could be that they they speak in script uh, of Disney movies, whatever that is, get in there with them with that. And you'll be surprised at how much of a deep connection you can make with your kiddos when you do that.
0: Oh, I love that so much. That's great. Where can people find out more about you and your work? So best place to go is my
1: website. My business is Sanford Autism Consulting. My website is SD, like San Diego, autismhelp.com. So it's SD, autismhelp.com and backslash resources. And that's where I offer uh, you know, free handouts for parents, uh, all the things that I do so far as uh, advocacy, all that is, is on that website. They can also find my podcast, which is Thriving Special Families. And I offer insight, humor, and hope for the special needs parenting journey there. So they can find that on Apple or Spotify or wherever they listen to their podcast as well.
0: Well, that's amazing. Thanks so much for joining us. And if you haven't already, make sure that you check out our new toddler course that is abspeech.org. It is perfect for your emerging communicators. So great information for parents and professionals. And it is new and it is launching this month. So we're very, very excited about that. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and write a review. I always love hearing from you and keep things fun and functional. Thanks so much, Crystal, for joining us. Thanks for having me bye Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.